When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he will be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loose, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Even who, everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Everyone heard John's, and John's birth, and they wondered about it. Literally, they placed these things in their heart. This passage I've just read, this first part here, I want us to focus on this last bit here. What then is this child going to be? I think that's the pivotal question that we all uh, need to ask today as we explore this birth of John the Baptist. People were asking questions because they'd heard the news about John as it got around. They heard the story about Zechariah, who were old in their age, that they were having a child in a surprising way. That Zechariah was serving in the temple, and when he came out, he couldn't speak anymore. And now that John has been born, the child has uh, been born, Mary's given birth, all of a sudden, Zechariah can speak again. Surely God is at work here. And so they begin to ask, what then is this child going to be? This is the key question that Luke is trying to get us to ask. Now, I know there's lots, of go- there's lots going on. Christmas is just a few days away. We can see much of our church is away visiting, uh, spending time with family. But this question is worth asking. Thankfully, we don't have to go far because Zechariah gives us some great clues as he starts singing praise to God. Luke tells us that his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Now, I want to just point out here that Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesying. This is more than just Zechariah overwhelmed with joy because he's had a son. This is more than just him saying faithful words that he has repeated hundreds of times as he's grown up as a Jewish man. This is the Holy Spirit speaking through him. These are inspired words. These are more than just Zechariah's words. This is God at work in sharing us good news. It says here that he, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. I want to focus on what he says here when he says that he has redeemed his people. Now, it's not immediately apparent what Zechariah might mean. As Christians, we might assume that he means Jesus, that God has come, the child is coming, and, and he has redeemed his people. But technically, Jesus hasn't come yet. This is in also in the past tense. Now, it could be that redemption, or he has redeemed and he has come. It's speaking the past tense. Sometimes this, they would speak this way in Israel. as a past, stating it in the past tense to say how certain it would be in the future. But I can't help but wonder if maybe Zechariah is speaking about something else here. That if he's saying God has come and redeemed his people, I can't help but wonder if he's maybe looking back. 
gets me wondering what he means by redeemed here. And it wasn't until I was looking in a commentary by Joel Green that he points out that the word redeemed here is actually the Greek word lutrosis. Uh, You don't need to worry too much about the Greek, but the point is this word was often used to speak about God's redemption in the Exodus. That God, that they, they often use it in the Greek version of the Old Testament, talking about God bringing his people out of Egypt in terms of redemption, neutrosis. So that Zechariah is saying it here, I think he's using it to hint to us that God is doing another Exodus-like thing. It's hard to pull it out just yet, but Zechariah is pointing to this. This new act of redemption is going to have Exodus-like significance. So as we keep going through, as we listen to these words of Zechariah, the words that the Holy Spirit has inspired him to speak, keep thinking or keep in the back of your mind, Exodus. So Zechariah goes on and he says, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he has said through his holy prophets of long ago. Now the backdrop shifts just a little bit here. In addition to the idea of Exodus, now Zechariah is saying that he has raised up a horn of salvation. That's in Israel. That's a Jewish way of saying he has raised up strength. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And at this point, by salvation, I hear the Holy Spirit means salvation on two levels. First, the social level, in terms of national salvation, but also spiritual. And I'll, get back, I'll come back to that more. And he says here, we'll be in the house of David, just like the prophet said of long ago. That not only is Zechariah invoking Exodus, this monumental watershed moment of the people of Israel, but he's also talking about their great king, David, and making all these connections here. God promised that one of David's descendants would rule on his throne forever. And the Holy Spirit, speaking through Zechariah, is saying this moment is coming. And all of this according to the prophets of old. Okay, next, Zechariah says, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Again, here, this point, I think, is, the, is salvation uh, on a few different enemies. But also, this continues the Exodus theme. Because I don't know if you notice this, I mean, you'd have to be a pretty great uh, student of the Psalms, but this is actually a quote from Psalm 106, which is really interesting in and of itself, but actually Psalm 106 is a psalm that recounts God's faithfulness through the Exodus, talking about how God took his people out of slavery, out of Egypt, and how he led them through the wilderness despite all the times that they were unfaithful to God, whether they were complaining about having no food or complaining about having no water or worshiping golden calves. Psalm 106 speaks of God's faithfulness about his covenant with them and remembering it. But for Zechariah, salvation from our enemies, I suspect as he's saying these words, he's probably assuming national salvation. Because you see, uh, Zechariah lives in his own land. He's a priest in Israel. But Israel is not controlled by Israel anymore. Now the Roman Empire has uh, occupied Israel just the latest version of a conquering army that has come. And so even though he lives in his own land, he is controlled by others. Roman soldiers move throughout the land, taking taxes, harming people, doing all sorts of things that are incongruent with what it means to be Jewish. 
Rome is just the newest Egypt that has put them into slavery. And he is longing for redemption. And so when he hears these words, when the Holy Spirit inspires him to say these words, I suspect his first thought is, God is sending us a political leader that will lead us into revolution and set us free. But the connections to Psalm 106 keep coming. And Zechariah says, he will do all of this uh, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Zechariah is naming God's faithfulness, much like the psalmist does in Psalm 106, that God is faithful to his covenant even when his people are not. goes on to say that God has raised up a horn of salvation to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him, make sure I'm not standing right in the way, without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So, it's interesting here because I wanted to point out that actually from verse 69 to 75, this is all one sentence with different parts modifying it. The Spirit is saying that the Savior is bringing on this new exodus, bringing people out of slavery. All right. So he's doing all this to rescue us from our enemies. By sin, I mean the effect that sin has on us, the consequences of our sin. Not only that, but the sin of others. Things that we've done that we regret or things that people have done to us that we still can't shake. God is setting us free from the enemy of sin. But also God is setting us free from the enemy of death. Think about this. That despite all of our efforts... We can't clean ourselves up. The death is still the penalty of sin. And if we die in our sin, we are separated from God. It's like we're trapped in a jail without bars. Trapped in a cycle of sin that ultimately leads to death. And without hope in Christ, death haunts us, terrorizes us people who are trying to figure out how to make it in life without hope of eternal life turn to all sorts of ways to make life work. But with Jesus and this new life that he promises, a new life that goes on forever, where, O oh death, where is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? That no longer does death become our enemy. In fact, sometimes begin to look at death not as the end but as the beginning of life in its fullest sense. So, God has come to bring us salvation, to set us free from our enemies, the enemies of sin and death, but also the enemy of Satan. And by Satan, I mean the deceiver and the accuser, the one who continually tears us down, that voice we hear that continually tries to tell us that we aren't good enough, that you aren't good enough for God, that we're unworthy, that will always be unworthy. Jesus has come to set us free from Satan, from those lies, from his lies, from his accusations. Jesus comes to set us free, comes to give us the truth that in him we have the right to be called children of God, that when we believe in him, because God has so loved us that we will not perish but have eternal life. 
These are the enemies that the horn of salvation has rescued us from. Okay, the Holy Spirit and Zechariah could stop there. If this was all that they had literally said, or if not even including all the things that they've alluded to, the Exodus and Psalm 106, not even including that, if they stopped right here, it would be enough. But the Holy Spirit keeps going. And Zechariah keeps speaking. And it just keeps getting better and better. Zechariah says, And you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Now, some of you might recognize this passage. It comes from the prophet Malachi. The last prophet to speak over 400 years before Zechariah says these words. The people have been waiting a long time for God to fulfill these words. Zechariah is quoting Malachi 3.1. He says, Malachi says, he says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. God will send a forerunner to go before his Messiah. Effectively, Zechariah is saying that his son John is this forerunner. And his forerunner is coming to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sin. Because ultimately, it's sin that separates us from God. I think that's an issue that we face today. People lack knowledge about sin. They don't understand what it is. People around us don't understand how pervasive it is. How much it works into almost every aspect of our life. And that because of it, we are separated from God our Father. I was thinking about it this morning, actually, that when people outside of, of Christianity, and sometimes even people inside of Christianity, they begin to think of faith mainly as the way I get to heaven. Now, there's truth to that, but Jesus meant for so much more. When we see faith only as my ticket to heaven, we miss out. Actually, Jesus was calling us into a relationship with him a relationship with him that changes who we are and at the same time reconciles us to our Father in heaven. And the side benefit of all that is, oh, and you get to go to heaven. (laughs) And see, when you focus on heaven only, you miss the relationship. And so sometimes I hear in people, the way they talk, is they talk about almost like God, like in a negative sense, like God is the gatekeeper keeping me from the heaven I want to get to which is not at all what Jesus intended. God, he intended for us to be in a right relationship with God because that is what heaven is. So, Jesus came to people to show people what sin was, to name it, to help us see it, to see that we need a Savior, that no matter how hard we try, we can't clean ourselves up. We can't get it right all the time. Sure, we might have some successes, but it's only a matter of time before we slip up, before we say or do something that we regret, that we realize is sinful and separates us from God. Now, I know that in our culture, uh, it's difficult. John came to show people, John the Baptist, Zechariah's boy, came to show people what sin was. 
You see, in his culture, the direct approach seemed to be pretty effective. But his culture was different. Different context. People were, uh, in ancient Israel, kind of everybody believed in God or knew who God was, who Yahweh was, and what faith meant to follow him. And so this direct approach could work. You could say, you are sinful. John said this, you are sinful. You need to turn back to God. And people would say, you're right. I agree. How do I do it? They were primed for repentance. And he came to help them see that they needed help. Today, in our culture, things are different. We have to broach the subject of sin graciously and carefully to help people see it. See that it separates them from God. Even the small stuff. Even the stuff where people say, well, yeah, I know, but, I mean, everybody does that. Not understanding even the stuff that, even if everybody does it, it still separates us from God. I hear people when we, people when I talk with them about sin, I can see their responses. Sometimes it's defensive. Who do you think you are? You're just another Christian, holier than thou, holy roller, coming to condemn me. Sometimes it's denial. Oh no, no, it's it's not as big as not as big a deal as you think, or it's just fine. Sometimes they get angry at us, start quoting the famous. Uh, non-Christian text, the most popular non-Christian text, which is, judge not lest you be judged yourself. I've heard that one. It's true that there are some Christians who come and get it wrong. Sometimes Christians come across and they accuse people or they condemn people or they don't even seem like they really care about them as they're talking about sin. Or sometimes uh, their hypocrisy gets in the way. But there is a way to do it to help people see. It's by caring for them first. Caring for them. There's this saying that I've heard when I was in seminary, one of my professors said it, and it stuck with me, this idea that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That once you have that relationship with someone, they know that you really care about them, then you can say, you know, I've noticed this in your life. And I'm not saying this to run you down. I'm saying this because I care about you. Because I see the way it holds you down. I was thinking about it. something like uh, a sliver. Uh, Sometimes there are big gaping uh, slivers or gashes in people's hands, the sin in their life. But sometimes there are smaller things that, that aren't as obvious. And I think about my boys when they have a sliver. And they know that the sliver hurts but they come up to me and they're not sure what they want to do with it. And so my boys, they come up to me and say, Dad, I have a sliver. Can we take it out? And I said, oh, that's a deep one. I need the needle to dig that one out. And they say, never mind. <laughs> never mind. And I said, well, it's only going to get worse because then it starts to get infected and then it hurts and it's going to hurt for days. Or we can have the sharp pain now and get it out. Sometimes the conversation about sin is like that with people. We have that sharp pain and then the relief, the healing that comes after. When we ignore it or when people say, I don't want to talk about it, that sin festers. It just stays lodged. And maybe they can think like, oh no, I can can put it behind me. I can just stop thinking about it. But that stuff piles up. And 
whether we recognize it or not, it separates us from God. So it's up to us as followers of Jesus to find fruitful ways to encourage people to give them knowledge of sin, to help them see. And that's the point. Not to condemn them or to get them to to recognize it, but to help them see. To speak speak with them in ways that they will see it. Not that they'll feel condemned or that we feel right about ourselves, but that we help them see. Because the fact is, we need knowledge too. Every person in this room, me included, need knowledge of our sin too. Because it's the things, uh, many of us at this point, it's the stuff that we don't see that's tripping us up. The sin that we don't recognize or that we don't want to recognize and we need each other to help us see it. Blind spots. When a faithful friend says, you know, when you say this, it's not good. And sometimes we're like, you're right. (laughs) I've been thinking about that for a while myself. Or sometimes we also say, I had no idea. I didn't even realize. Think about this, um, this psalm that says, talks, or I saw your proverb says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Friends, even when they speak hard words, is the truth in love, they still help us to see. But once we see, it's up to us to repent and to ask God for his forgiveness. So John came to give knowledge of salvation. That I think this exodus that we were talking about a few moments ago is less of a national exodus for Israel and more of a spiritual exodus for all of humanity to lead us out of the bondage of slavery. God is doing all of this because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. Like my boys and their slivers, God is trying to help us because he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's true that God hates sin. It's what a just and holy God does. But he also cherishes us and has done everything to make a way for us back to him through repentance in his son, our Lord Jesus And lastly, John says, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. I know for a few of us, this sounds familiar. It's actually a quote from the prophet Isaiah. Let me read this whole thing to you. Listen to this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest, as men and women rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment that is rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. And from that time on and forever, 
the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the final word the Holy Spirit speaks through Zechariah. The culmination of everything that he said. Today, this is the child that we celebrate. Not just John, but the one he came to point to. The Son of God. While the world around us celebrates Christmas in just about every other way, with Santa Clauses and reindeers and parties and presents, we stay gathered around the child, around this Savior who would come. The Savior who brings a new exodus, an exodus from the slavery to sin, who gives us knowledge of sin and what it is and what it looks like so that we can repent and return to a right relationship with God our Father. This is the child we gather around. The child who is the Messiah from the house of David, who sits on the throne of David forever. Our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace. Merry Christmas. Amen.